Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. Artist and writer Jenny O'Dell's recent book, How to Do Nothing, begins, Nothing is harder to do than nothing. In a world where our value is determined by our productivity, many of us find our every last minute captured, optimized, or appropriated as a financial resource by the technologies we use daily. A certain nervous feeling of being overstimulated and unable to sustain a train of thought lingers. Though it can be hard to grasp before it disappears behind that screen of distraction, this feeling is, in fact, urgent. Most of you know the feeling of stupor when surfacing from the rabbit hole of lost time on Facebook or Instagram. And though we may be loath to admit it, the invasive nature of social media financially incentivized to keep us in a profitable state of anxiety, envy, and distraction. But long before social media, Hispano-Roman Stoic philosopher Seneca wrote, look back in memory and consider how much has robbed you of life when you were not aware of what you were losing. How much was taken up in useless sorrow, in foolish joy, in greedy desire, in the allurements of society? How little of yourself was left to you? You will perceive, he says, that you are dying before your season. And already in 1877, long before social media, Scottish writer Robert Louis Stevenson called busyness a symptom of deficient vitality, and bemoaned a sort of dead, alive, hackneyed people who are scarcely conscious of living, except in the exercise of some conventional occupation. In How to Do Nothing, Jenny O'Dell is inviting us to simply slow down or stop. Not a weekend retreat so that we can return to work refreshed and be more productive, but rather to deeply question what we currently perceive as productive, to disengage from that which is not life-giving, and to engage with what is. And to guide that process, she asks some very important questions, including my favorites. What would back to the land mean if we understood the land to be where we are right now? Could augmented reality simply mean putting down your phone? And when you finally do, what or 
who is that sitting in front of you? She is imagining for us a practice in which our attention is rested from the assault of incoming hits. When we stop allowing our attention to be bought and sold and bring it home to the present, the gift of this very moment. As I've reflected on the how of this, I've returned to the power of giving thanks and of its deep intersection with joy. This is American poet Anne Sexton's poem, Welcome Morning, made more beautiful by the knowledge of the poet's pitched battle with mental illness. Welcome morning. There is a joy in all. In the hair I brush each morning, in the cannon towel newly washed that I rub my body with each morning, in the chapel of eggs I cook each morning, in the outcry of the kettle that heats my coffee each morning, in the spoon and the chair that cry, hello there, Anne, each morning, in the godhead of the table that I set my silver plate cup upon each morning. All this is God, right here in my pea green house each morning. And I mean, though often forget to give thanks, to faint down by the kitchen table in a prayer of rejoicing as the holy birds at the kitchen window peck into their marriage of seeds. So while I think of it, let me paint a thank you on my palm for this God, this laughter of the morning, lest it go unspoken. The joy that isn't shared, I've heard, dies young. To give ourselves to this spiritual practice of gratitude is by definition to notice, to regard, to appreciate, and to feel joy. Our own Barb Seidel taught us her gratitude practice, three things written down at the close of the day. The additional rule for my own practice is no repeating. This past week, I got to note just once all five bright solar system planets in the night sky. Then I had to focus on Jupiter hanging low, and the next night, Saturn, so beautiful. And then I got curious and looked it up. On December 21st, Jupiter and Saturn will have a great conjunction, the closest they have been to one another since 1623. Gratitude calls our attention to linger, to see the details, to remember, and to anticipate joy. In the 1970s, composer and musician Pauline Oliveros taught an experimental music class at UC San Diego and developed participatory group techniques such as people listening to each other's music and improvising responses. Her goal, she said, was sound healing, bringing some inner peace to bear on the violence and upheaval of the Vietnam War. 
She called the technique that emerged deep listening. Listening in every possible way to everything possible to hear, no matter what you are doing. To hear, she said, is the physical means that enables perception. To listen is to give attention to what is perceived, both acoustically and psychologically. Deep listening includes attending to the sounds of daily life, of nature, of one's own thoughts, as well as musical sounds. Deep listening represents a heightened state of awareness and connects us to all there is. The goal and the reward of deep listening is this heightened sense of receptivity and a reversal of our cultural training, which teaches us to quickly analyze and judge more than simply to observe. When we listen or look, smell, feel, or taste in this way for just a beat, time stops. In her book, Wanderlust, American writer and activist Rebecca Solnit writes of walking the labyrinth inside San Francisco's Grace Cathedral. The circuit was so absorbing, she says, I lost sight of the people nearby and hardly heard the sound of the traffic and the bells for six o'clock. When we practice slowing down enough to notice, to pay attention, and to give thanks, it's like a tiny vacation. We return to everyday life with our senses open and blessed. We return thankful. Baron Wormser is the former poet laureate of Maine. Let's close now with his poem, Opinion. Halfway to work and Merriman has already told me what he thinks about the balanced budget, the Met's lack of starting pitching, the dangers of displaced Soviet nuclear engineers, soy products, and diesel cars. I look out the window and hope I'll see a swan. I hear they're bad-tempered, but I love their necks and how they glide along so sovereignly. I never take the time to drive to a pond and spend an hour watching swans. What would happen if I heeded the admonitions of beauty? When I look over at Merriman, he's telling Driscoll that the president doesn't know what he's doing with China. China, I say out loud, but softly. I go back to the window. It started snowing. At the age of 28, Scottish-American naturalist and early advocate for the preservation of wilderness, John Muir was working in a wagon wheel factory when he suffered an accident that left him temporarily blind and confined to a darkened room for six weeks with no assurance that he would regain his sight. Years later, his editor, William Frederick Baud, collected the writings of John Muir and divided them into two parts, one before the accident and one after. In introducing the second part, Baud writes that Muir's enforced period of reflection convinced him that life was too brief and uncertain and time too precious to waste upon belts and saws, that while he was pottering in a wagon factory, God was making a world. 
and he vowed that if his eyesight were spared, he would devote the remainder of his life to a study of the process. When his sight returned, he saw the world he said and his purpose in a new light. From that time on, he was determined to be true to himself. Six months later, in September of 1867, Muir walked from Kentucky to Florida by the wildest, leafiest, and least trodden way he could find. Muir wrote, this affliction has driven me to sweet fields. God has to nearly kill us sometimes to teach us lessons. What if we chose to change course before we are forced to. Beloved spiritual companions, this Thanksgiving comes to us at a time of suffering, suffering in mind, body, and spirit for so many in the world. Many of us are feeling anxious, lonely, and afraid. No one said that gratitude would come easily. The spiritual practice of gratitude is also an act of faith. And we will find that in the practice of giving thanks, we build the muscle of a way of seeing and being in the world, in thanks and in love. Happy Thanksgiving, beloveds. Amen. And now for our benediction, I invite you to put your hands over your heart in namaste. I bow to the divine in you. Our benediction is from American singer and songwriter Bob Frankie. He calls it Thanksgiving Eve. What can we do with our days but work and hope? Let our dreams bind our work to our play. What can we do with each moment of our lives but love till we've loved it away? Let us keep this faith, beloveds, and pass it on. The service begins when the service ends. Bless your hearts. I love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org. Dot org.